What do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when you don't know what to do? How do you know whether to buy a house or keep renting? How do you decide who you date or marry? You're like, well, whoever's available. Well, how do you think through what school to go to, what city to live in, what church to join, what job to take? How to care for your aging parents? How to engage your coworkers? How do you approach decision making when you have several good options in front of you and any of them, none of them, appear to be the best or right choice? How do you know what to do when you don't know what to do? Does the Bible tell us what God's will is for our lives? Does the Bible answer these questions for us? Well, specifically, no, but generally, yes, God actually does tell us plainly what His will is for us in the Bible. For example, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, This is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Another way to say that is when Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. So what is God's will for our lives? Well, God's will for our lives is that we center our lives on God. God's will is that we live for God and look like God. Seek first the kingdom, live for God, and His righteousness, or your sanctification, your growing into the image of Christ. Look like Him. Live for Him. Look like Him. Live for Him. Look like Him. That's God's plan for your life. Let's go ahead and pray you'd be dismissed. <laughs> this means, I think, that God's will for our life is much simpler than we probably often realize. As Kevin DeYoung says in his little book, Just Do Something, and I mentioned this in the training class, we have this in the church library. I can't recommend this little book by Kevin DeYoung, Just Do Something, a liberating approach to finding God's will more highly enough. DeYoung says, God's will is not Quote, an unexplained labyrinth whose center we are supposed to discover. The most important decision, he says, we face is the daily decision to live for Christ and die to self. End quote. This approach to decision making is so liberating or freeing. He continues, quote, God wants us to stop obsessing about the future and trust that he holds the future. We should put aside the passivity and the perfectionism and the quest for perfect fulfillment and get on with our lives. And listen to this, and I wonder if you believe this. He says, God does not have a specific plan for our lives that He means for us to decipher ahead of time. I don't know that all of us actually agree with that, so I'm going to read it again. God does not have a specific plan for our lives that He means for us to decipher ahead of time. God's will for our lives is that we center our lives on God, that we live for Him and look like Him. Now you may be thinking, okay, John, I get it. I just need to trust God more and stop freaking out about every decision I have to make. But look, I really need some help making some decisions because I've got some big ones to make and they're really scary. So could you just help a little bit? <laughs> well, I'm with you. I'm with you. I face daily, weekly, monthly the same heaviness in decision-making that you face all the time. We know the general will of God. It's here plainly in the Bible, as I've already read. We know that He's after our holiness, but we still need to figure out what we're supposed to do. <laughs> Amen? Oddly enough, I think Jacob's situation in Genesis chapter 31 can help us. So find a Bible and find Genesis 31. When Jacob is on his way out of Canaan, back in chapter 28, God shows up. Remember the, the stairway to heaven? Angels descending and ascending. God shows up and speaks to Jacob. And one of the main things he says to him, and this is Genesis 28, 13 and 15, he says, The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring, and I will bring you back to this land. Now that's 
that sounds great, but the uh, thing we must remember is the land that Jacob was lying on, the land on which you lie, the, the ground that Jacob was lying on, did not belong to Jacob or his family. It belonged to a whole bunch of other people. But God told him plain, plainly, I'm going to give you this land, and I know you're going out of this land, but I will bring you back to this land. So God promises, while Jacob's leaving, to bring him back. But then Jacob goes to Haran, if we've seen in the last week or two. He goes up north, about four to 500 miles north, to Haran, and 20 years later, he's still in Haran. 20 years is a long time. Do you remember what you were doing 20 years ago? I don't. So God says, I know you're going away, but you will come back, and I'm going to give you and your offspring all this land. And then Jacob's gone for 20 years. So Jacob knows God's general will for his life because God told him what it was. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to give you this land. Just trust me. But what Jacob didn't know were the specifics. He didn't know how that was going to play out. Well, that begins to change in chapter 31. God's will to bring Jacob back to the land of Canaan starts to materialize in 31. The way it plays out, I think, is instructive for us as we think through how the Lord wants to guide us, how He wants to lead us in our lives. So I want to go through this chapter. I think it's the second longest chapter in Genesis. Amen? 55 verses. So we're not going to dwell on everything. There'll be questions that we skip, and you can ask me later. We're going to go through the chapter, but then I want to spend a, a decent amount of time at the end, after we get through the chapter, reflecting on how, based on how God guides Jacob, how God also ordinarily guides us. So we're going to go through the chapter. We're going to see three things. Number one, we'll see Jacob flee Laban. Jacob flee Laban. That's 1 through 21, verses 1 through 21. Then secondly, we'll see Laban catch Jacob. Laban catch Jacob, that's 22 through 42. And then thirdly, Jacob and Laban part ways. Jacob and Laban part ways, that's 43 through 55. So Jacob flees Laban, Laban catches Jacob, and Jacob and Laban part ways. Jacob's return to Canaan has much to teach us about how God guides his people and about how he will eventually save his people more on that at the end. Number one, Jacob flees Laban. Genesis 31, verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your father's. And to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was, and he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If I said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. I don't know what mottled means, by the way. Mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I've seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. 14. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property, that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he acquired in Paddan Aram, 
to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone down to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Jacob flees Laban, number one. So verse one says Jacob learns that Laban's sons have grown to resent him. Then verse two, he notices that Laban's disposition toward him has changed. Verse three, though, is the deciding factor for Jacob's returning to Canaan, not his circumstances. Verse three, the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers. Notice that the command, though, God's command is accompanied with a promise of his presence. Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So whether Jacob is leaving his home or returning to his home, he will never travel alone. God will always be with him. Verses 4 through 13, Jacob starts to tell Rachel and Leah his plan. He makes it plain and clear to Rachel and Leah that he didn't dupe Laban out of his flocks by magic or trickery. He says this plainly in verse 9. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. So you might remember from last week, remember the incident with the sticks? He's peeling bark off the sticks. He's putting them in front of the animals, which is just kind of crazy, not scientific at all. Well, here we learn that even Jacob comes to realize that it was God who increased his flocks, not the sticks. Okay, not the sticks. So he's saying to them plainly that he's increased in wealth because of God, not because of his trickery. Then he relays this dream he has where this angel tells him how he's seen Laban and how Laban's treated, mistreated Jacob and therefore prospered Jacob as a result. Jacob wants his wives to know that God and God alone is responsible for his prosperity, that he's not prospering because he's stolen or tricked their father. But then interestingly, in verses 14 through 16, Jacob, excuse me, Rachel uh, and Leah say they don't need Jacob to convince them that their father is a scumbag. <laughs> they say, is there any portion for us? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? This is his daughter speaking. Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and indeed devoured our money. They believe Jacob. They are ready to follow Jacob, not because of what Laban did to Jacob, but because of what Laban did to them. They remember how he used them as pawns in his financial scheme. And they're done. They're totally okay to get out of town. Parents, just briefly, let me remind us that the way we treat our children has consequences. The way we treat our children has consequences. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Galatians 6, 7. So Rachel and Leah are done with Laban. They know what kind of guy he is. And so they don't need convincing. They're ready to go with Jacob. Then verses 17 and 18, narrated, narrator Moses underscores the fact, again, that Jacob hasn't swindled Laban to gain all this Wealth. Notice the language in 17 and 18. So Jacob arose, set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Moses emphasizes this point with the third person pronoun, his sons, his wives, his livestock, his property, his possession. Jacob came by his wealth honestly. Jacob may have been a deceitful man in some ways, and certainly was, but here he's not. He'd, become, he'd come by his wealth, he'd come by his wealth honestly. But then verse 19, we have this weird mention of Rachel stealing the household gods. We're like, Rachel, can't you just get on the camel and go? Like, come on. So in Jacob, excuse me, Laban had gone to shear his sheep, so that was a process that probably took about a week. Rachel stole her, her father's household gods. An ancient reader, and I hope many of us, would not miss the sarcasm here. Um, what kind of God is it if it can be stolen? <laughs> right? This is some sort of new crime in the Bible. God napping, you know. She's stealing. And these aren't big statues. They're small, as we'll find out. They're going to be able to fit underneath the saddle of the camel. 
We don't know why she does this. The text doesn't tell us why she does this. Maybe Rachel thought they would provide protection on their journey. Maybe she was motivated by their monetary value. Or maybe she was motivated by vindictiveness, wanting to spite her father for the ways he treated her. There's evidence that in the ancient Near East, household gods were passed on to the heir so that whoever possessed the household gods was the heir of the father's estate. So maybe Rachel was trying to be the heir. But whatever her reasons were, this was not a good idea. It's yet another example in Genesis of an impulsive action that almost leads to disaster, as we see now in number two, the next section. Number two, Laban catches Jacob. Laban catches Jacob, verses 22 through 42. Verse 22, when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid. I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you... What have you found of all, your household go- of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I've not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands, and rebuked you last night. Number two, Laban catches Jacob. So Laban catches up with Jacob, wants his family and his gods back. Laban finds out that Jacob and his family has left, so he chases them down. But God chases Laban down during one night. uh, During a sleep one night, he gives him this dream where he tells Laban not to harm Jacob. Laban shows up, verse 26, accuses Jacob of tricking him and kidnapping his daughters. Look at 26 again. Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? That you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives uh, captives of the sword. Well, is that what happened? (laughs) No, that's not what happened. This charge is just plain false. Rachel and Leah gladly and voluntarily left Laban. Laban's words here in 27 and 28 are therefore probably not genuine. 
I would have sent you away with mirth and songs, tambourine and lyre. Why didn't you allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Think of it. Why would Laban celebrate Jacob and his family leaving when he'd done all that he could to get them to stay? What Laban says sounds nice and heroic, but we know what he's done. We know what kind of guy he is. Laban is a false man. He's pretending to be a victim and a loving, doting father. But this is, again, the same man who used his two daughters as pawns in his financial game, game and then cheated and stole from Jacob for decades then he's the one at the end of 29 who has the audacity, excuse me, 28, to call Jacob the fool. Now you have done foolishly. Twenty-nine, Laban pivots from hurt father to powerful avenger. It is in my power to do you harm. He says he has the power to harm Jacob. Maybe that means imprisonment. Maybe that just means taking his daughters away. Maybe it means killing them. We're not sure. What we do know is that there is one with more power than Laban who intervened and restrained him from doing anything to harm Jacob and his family. But the God of your father spoke to me last night. So Laban respects Jacob's God even if he doesn't respect Jacob. But then he accuses him in verse 30 of stealing his household gods which isn't a false accusation. Somebody had taken these gods. Jacob doesn't even know who. Laban's first accusation back here in 26 through 28 is, is pretty lengthy. The second one is only four words in Hebrew. Why did you steal my gods? But this second accusation is probably potentially what he's most upset about. It seems that this is the more serious charge because then he goes to great lengths to try to find these gods. Jacob, of course, unwisely pronounces the death sentence on, ev- on whoever has Laban's gods, not knowing that's Rachel, his beloved one. And then we come to verse 33 where, again, the Israelites, the first readers of this, would find this very humorous. 33, so Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, to the tent of the two, the two female servants, and he did not find them. He went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now this is really, really humorous because here's Laban frantically rummaging around tent after tent to find his gods. But again, what kind of gods are they if you can lose them like you lose your keys? The first readers of this are definitely laughing. Just picture godless Laban bouncing from tent to tent, searching diligently for these little statues that he's so so focused on finding. But there's a little detail here, I think, that Moses wants his original readers and us to see. Indirectly, Yahweh, the one true and living God, passes judgment on these false gods by saying in 34 and 35 that Rachel was sitting on them during her monthly cycle. These gods that were so crucial for Laban are reduced to sanitary towels and rendered unclean. The point Moses wants to make for us is that false gods are small and unclean and unfit for the people of God. And then that brings us to this speech in 36 through 42 where Jacob goes on the offensive and berates Laban for this accusation that he stole his gods. Laban believes Jacob is guilty until proven innocent, but Jacob says he's innocent until proven guilty. He uses his long record of faithful service to argue that Laban has no right to question his integrity. 38, these 20 years I have been with you. Jacob covered the loss of any of his animals that were lost. He endured changing weather to serve changeable Laban. Verse 40, there I was by day the heat consumed me and the cold by night and my sleep fled from my eyes. Now, by the way, this description of ancient shepherding corrects any um, glamorous uh, or romantic vision we have of what shepherding entailed in the ancient world. It also reminds us of the nature of the pastor's calling. Shepherding, then or now, in all of its forms, is not glamorous. 
There's a price to be paid. And in the local church, only men with a willingness to pay it and the character to do so gladly should shepherd God's sheep. So brothers, if you're aspiring to the office of overseer, please keep this in mind. Shepherding is not glamorous, but it is glorious. It is glorious because it's doing the Lord's work with the Lord's people. So 42 concludes the speech. Jacob appeals to God. 42, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac, more on that in a minute, had not been on my side, surely now you would, you would have sent me away empty handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and he rebuked you last night. Jacob is saying that only God could stop Laban's revenge, and he did. Only God could rescue his son Jacob, and he has. But interestingly, Jacob calls God the fear of Isaac. The fear of Isaac. What does that mean? Well, it's probably better translated, the dreaded one of Isaac. Well, you're like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> the dreaded one of Isaac. Well, the meaning is the one of Isaac, the God of Isaac, who inspires dread. The one of Isaac who inspires dread, which fits this context nicely because by using this name, Jacob is saying that the only reason Laban didn't harm him is because the God of his fathers spoke to Laban and that revelation was all it took to make evil Laban stand down. Jacob doesn't know that Laban's false gods are with him, but he does know that the one true living and almighty God is with him and this God is the one who inspires dread in his enemies. When the one true and living God speaks or reveals himself to someone, things change. Amen. Like they did for Laban. Laban came to do harm of some variety, we don't know, but God intervened and God put the fear of God in Laban so that he wouldn't harm Jacob or his family. And he didn't. Maybe the smartest thing Laban ever did. So we've seen Jacob flee Laban. Laban catch Jacob. Now, number three, the last section here, 43 through 55, we see Jacob and Laban part ways once and for all. Verse 43, Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom you have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. 50, if you oppress my daughters or if you take wives beside, besides my daughters, although no one is with you, although no one is with us, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. So in 43, Laban again begins with this grandiose and false speech. These daughters are mine, the children are mine, the flocks are mine. Basically everything here, Jacob, is mine. <laughs> this is a cry of frustration from a man who's been beaten. Men who know they've been beaten will often say outlandish and false things. Then Laban suggests making a covenant or treaty. Verse 44, come now, let us make a covenant. 
The word covenant can mean treaty or pact, an agreement. Now, why did Slavin want to do this? Is he still trying to maintain some sort of control over Jacob's family? And why on earth would Jacob want to enter into an agreement with a liar like Laban? Well, notice, you may have noticed that Jacob doesn't speak. He gives Laban the silent treatment. He only responds with action, 45. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He tells his kinsmen to gather stones and they had set up the heap. So Jacob's not really interested in talking with Laban. Laban's words can't be trusted. So Jacob wants tangible evidence to confirm this treaty they're making. So he makes the pillar and the heap of stones. Verses 49 and 50, Laban's reasons for wanting this treaty become clear. 50 in particular, if you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is witness between you and me. Uh, Laban wants to incentivize Jacob to not mistreat his daughters. Now, the irony here is so thick. Are you catching this? He doesn't want Jacob to mistreat his daughters. Laban doesn't want Jacob to mistreat the daughters that he's mistreated. The man who time and time again mistreated Jacob, mistreated his daughters, now wants Jacob to promise that he won't mistreat his daughters. Friends, people who live in a house of lies are likely not going to see the truth when it's standing at their door. Because they're persuaded by their false reality and don't want to hear or affirm the truth. Laban is suspicious of what Jacob may do to his daughters and to him, so he makes this agreement. He agrees to make the pillar and the pile of stones. He thinks Jacob is the one who's most liable to break the pact. So he says God will have to keep Jacob under observation. God is witness between you and me. Jacob nonetheless enters into this agreement. He makes the pile. He makes the pillar. And then 54, he makes a sacrifice and eats a meal. Did you see that? Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. The order, this is very important for biblical the trajectory of biblical history, the order of sacrifice and then mill will become very important as the story of the Bible unfolds, culminating, of course, in Jesus' sacrifice that we remember through the mill of the Lord's Supper. But then in verse 55, Laban leaves. Laban leaves. He kisses his grandchildren and his daughters, and it says he even blessed them. But who does it leave out? Who's not in verse 55? Jacob. Jacob. What a difference between this and their first meeting. You might remember from chapter 29 when Laban, it says, ran to meet Jacob and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. But now, by the end of 31, now that Jacob can no longer benefit Laban in any way, Laban's done with him. His affection, like his words, was false. He loved Jacob for what Jacob could do for him, not for who Jacob was. So Jacob and Laban part ways. God said he would prosper Jacob. God said he would bring him back to the land of Canaan. But then Jacob goes and spends 20 years with Laban. 20 years is a long time with anyone. In the best of circumstances. Can you imagine spending 20 years working for a man like Laban? Some of you are like, yeah, I've been there, man. <laughs> Don't tell my boss I said that, you know. Can you imagine 20 years with Laban? Jacob knew what God's general will was for, her life, for his life. I will bring you back to this land. I will give you this land that you lie on. He knew what God's will was for his life, but he didn't know what the specifics were. Jacob's return to Canaan, therefore, has much to teach us about how God guides his people and about one day how he'll save his people. So here are a few things we can learn from this episode about how God guides his people. First, Jacob has a desire to go home. We learned this actually back in chapter 30, chapter 30, verse 25. 
As soon as Rachel had borne Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I might go to my own home and country. Jacob wants to go home. He has a desire to go home. But this desire wasn't enough to warrant a move, so Jacob must wait a while longer. Until secondly, his circumstances changed so that going back home would seem, uh, seem like a wise thing to do. This is chapter 31, verse 1 and 2. Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has granted all this wealth. Verse 2, And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. So Jacob's circumstances in Laban's house were changing. Laban's sons are now jealous of him. Laban has had, had a change of disposition toward him. So this makes it clear in Jacob's mind that a change is imminent, that a change needs to happen. He's thinking, I can't live in this situation anymore. But even that is not enough to justify him leaving until verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Jacob didn't feel justified in leaving until the Lord spoke to him and told him to go home, which he affirms later in the dream he has. So Jacob had a desire to go home, circumstances that suggested that a move home would be a wise thing, and then a clear word from the Lord that affirmed what the Lord had previously told him. These three things were used to guide Jacob, and I am convinced, and I will submit to you today, that God still uses these three things to guide His people today. I'm going to take them one at a time, but in reverse order. So we're going to look quickly at how the Lord leads us through His Word, through our circumstances, and through our desires. More could be said. That's why I'd love for you to pick up this little book if you're able. First, God leads us through His Word. He leads us through His Word. This doesn't mean that we should expect God to speak to us like He spoke to Jacob before we make any decision. God never promises us that. God never promises that He will speak to us in a way that's audible or clearly discerned, that it's infallibly His voice that we should do this rather than that. That promise is not in the Bible. But He does, nonetheless, want us to listen to Him. So how do we listen to God? Audience participation? Read the Bible aloud. <laughs> Read the Bible aloud. Read the Bible aloud or quietly if you so prefer. <laughs> Read the Bible. God has spoken to us in His Word. So we can listen to Him by immersing ourselves in His Word. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what to do in every circumstance, but it does fill our hearts and our heads with God's wisdom. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? So that you can test and discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How is our mind renewed? How does our mind go from thinking like the world to thinking like God? Listening, um, observing, um, imbibing the thoughts of God as much as as we can. I wrote about this in this month's newsletter. I'd encourage you to read more on this point there. I do want to say this though. God never tells us in his word that we, or excuse me, that we should ask him to reveal his future plans to us. Let me say that again because again, I think this is a point we get tripped up on. God never tells us in his word that we should ask him to reveal his specific future plans to us. Now, if there's some verses I'm missing, please tell me what they are. God never tells us in His Word to ask Him for future specific plans. However, we are told in passages like Proverbs 2 or James 1 to call out for understanding and ask for wisdom. Those kinds of commands are all over the Bible. Call out for understanding. Ask for wisdom. James literally says, if any of you lacks wisdom, just ask God for it. That's James chapter 1. If you lack wisdom, ask God for it and He'll grant it. 
God is saying, don't ask to see all the plans I've made for you. Ask me for wisdom so that you'll know how to live according to my will. This wisdom comes primarily from the Bible, of course, but it also comes from godly counselors. When I say godly counselor, by the way, I mean someone who knows the Bible and someone who knows you. When God gives us wisdom, He often gives it to us through other people. It amazes me how many people make life-changing decisions without consulting anyone. And not that we should consult everyone about everything, that's foolishness, but there's safety in many counselors. The best counselors are the ones who know the Bible, know you, and they will help you think through big decisions. They will help you see things that you don't see, ask questions you're not asking. This is one of the good gifts of the local church, brothers and sisters. If you have a big decision facing you, go have coffee with one of your church members. Uh, Ask them what they think. They're Their counsel isn't infallible, but it might be helpful. It likely will help you think through things you're not thinking about. Those who forego this means of wisdom do so to their own peril. God intends to lead us through His Word, through the wisdom of His Word, and through the wisdom of others of His people speaking into our lives. That's number one. The second way God intends to lead us is through circumstances. God leads through circumstances. Now this this theology, if you will, this, this thought is often abused. We can take this too far and assume that every open door is therefore from God. Uh, I had a, um, just thought of something. Uh, I was in Zambia on a mission trip and this Bible college had said, hey, we want you to come and, and teach here and live here. And man, I was like, oh, that would be awesome. I wanted to do that in a sense. Uh, but I knew some things weren't going to uh, make that work. And so this wise old pastor, he was my roommate. I just asked him what he thought. I, I literally just met the guy like two days before. I was like, hey, man, this offer came my way. What do you think? He, says, not every, he said not every opportunity is an obligation. Not every opportunity is obligated. Just because something comes your way doesn't mean God necessarily wants you to do it. That's just, again, that's a principle that's not in the Bible. But we might often think that that's what God is doing. Let me give you some counsel from Kevin DeYoung. I think he gives us several good examples here. He says, quote, Christians are sometimes guilty of using the absence of an open door as an excuse for laziness saying, I put my resume on monster.com. I don't know, people still using monster.com? I don't know, whatever people use. I put my resume out there last week and no one has contacted me. The Lord just isn't opening any doors. The young says, perhaps, but maybe you should make some phone calls, knock on some doors and visit every potential employer in town before you blame God for your unemployment. Then he says, likewise, Christians often use the open door theology to bless whatever bad idea they've already decided to do. I know my marriage is in shambles and my wife wants me around more so we can work things out. But God has opened the door for me to get a a promotion at work. So God must be leading me to take this job or else he wouldn't have opened the door. The young continues, similarly, we sometimes take the easy way out and then spiritualize our cowardice by claiming it was an open door. For example, he says, don't think to yourself, I need to call and have a difficult conversation with someone, but my phone is dead, so the Lord must want me to write an email instead. (laughs) He says, don't think that the convenient way is always God's way, end quote. The point is, we misinterpret and misapply circumstances all the time. They're not infallible. But that doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't use circumstances nonetheless to guide us. For example, if you want to go to a certain school, but you can't afford to go to that certain school, then that circumstance is a good reason for you not to go to that school. Or if you want to take a certain job, but that job doesn't pay you what you need to make to provide for your family, then that circumstance is screaming at you to not take that job no matter how much you want it. Because the Bible tells you plainly that if you can't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. So circumstances are helpful, but they're not everything. They're not everything. 
Third, God uses our desires to guide us. So his word, circumstances, and desires. Sometimes, as Christians, we think that wanting things is necessarily bad. We think that wanting things is necessarily bad. But do you remember the language Paul uses in Romans 15? He says, I make it my ambition, ambition to take the gospel where Christ is not named. So he had a desire to do something, something good and for the glory of Christ. Ambition is not inherently bad. God often leads us through our specific desires. For example, I have no idea why in college I kind of out of nowhere developed this strong desire to study the Bible for the rest of my life. That, that desire didn't mean that I should or must be a pastor. Circumstances and the Lord's word about who can be an elder all had to be applied to. But without those desires, as a 19-year-old freshman in college, without those desires, I never would have pursued vocational ministry. When Susie and I were first married, I was about to start working for a missions organization, but I just couldn't get excited about this job. They were wonderful folks. I love those guys a lot. They're doing great work. But the job was going to be mostly organization and administration, um, Two of my least favorite thing, things. Amen, Mason? I just couldn't, I couldn't get excited about having a job that was mostly admin. Um, and I couldn't shake the overwhelming desire that I had to study the Bible so that I could preach and teach the Bible. So I turned that job down as a newlywed and I mowed yards for over a year and kept going to seminary. Years later, as I finished up school and was looking for a church to pastor, I remember talking to my pastor at that time about my options. He told me something I will never forget. He said, John, all things being equal, what has God put in your heart to do? And that was a clarifying moment for me. Because it helped me realize that I would prefer to go to a church that needed revitalizing and reforming rather than to a more you know, healthier, established church. Now, of course, our desires can mislead. Our desires can be deceitful. They can't always be trusted. But as Augustine famously said, love God with all your heart and do whatever you want. Love God with all your heart and do whatever you want. The psalmist would say it this way. I prayed this earlier. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. Y'all know what I'm going with this? Delight yourself in the Lord, in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Because as He's your delight, then you want to do the things that delight Him. So God uses His word, circumstances, and desires to guide Jacob and this approach to guidance for His people hasn't changed. Brothers and sisters, get in the word. Let the word get into you. Think carefully about the ways you're thinking about open and closed doors. Talk to brothers and sisters. Pursue godly counselors. Pray earnestly for wisdom from above. And delight yourself in the Lord and see what kind of desires He births in you for His glory. Now, Jacob's return to Canaan also teaches us about how God will eventually save His people. Jacob's stay in Haran is meant to be a preview for what God will later do with Israel in the Exodus. Jacob's exile to Haran previews what will happen later to Israel in Egypt. Just as Jacob's family multiplied in exile, so Israel will multiply in exile. Just as Jacob prospered in exile, so Israel would prosper when they plundered the Egyptians in the Exodus. Just as God had to free Jacob from Laban and clear his way to the promised land, so God would free Israel from Egypt and bring them to Canaan. Even more, this episode in Jacob's life and then Israel's life points us to Jesus himself, who was also called out of Egypt, out of exile, if you will, and accomplished the spiritual exodus of his people and is now bringing them infallibly, bringing them to their home. So, Brothers and sisters, this narrative in Genesis 
is about more than just Jacob and Laban. This narrative, broadly speaking, is, a, is meant to show us something of how God is saving us. We also are exiled and in servitude to sin. But God sent Christ, the new Israel, the new Jacob, to set us free from our sins, to bring us out of exile, to bring us back home to a promised land. So everyone who turns away from their sin and embraces the hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ will be rescued from evil and exile and sin and Satan and set on a journey home with the promises of God at their side. We'll end where we started. What do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when you don't know what to do? Brothers and sisters, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. In Christ, God graciously guides us through the webs of complex decisions we have to make as we listen to His Word, we listen to our brothers and sisters, we listen to circumstances, we listen to desires. And in Christ, God will guide us not just through decisions. Here's the good news of the gospel. God doesn't just guide us through decisions, which is amazing that He does that. God also is guiding us home. We will make it home, brothers and sisters. We will make it home safely. Paul says, thanks be to God who in Christ always, always leads us in triumphal procession. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the victory, the triumph we have in Christ. Thank you that in Christ we know that we will make it home. Father, thank you that also as those who have been bought by the blood of Christ, we have your spirit and your word and your church. So many good gifts to guide us. Lord, help us not to neglect these gifts. Help us to think carefully through our decisions. Help us to wait on the Lord. Help us to pray earnestly, to ask for wisdom, to include brothers and sisters into the conversation. Help us to test and approve what the will of God is, that good and acceptable and perfect will. We need your help in these things, Father. We are faced with decisions that are beyond us that will shape our lives. Help us to understand that we don't have to find some mysterious bullseye on our target. Help us to remember that your will for our lives is simply that we live for you and that we look more and more like you. Help us in this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.